All right, today is November 8th. Welcome to Native Calgarian. Today is Indigenous Veterans Day, so I'm actually quite excited about that. Oki, Naganago, Meko Chase Chestakom Haki. My name is Michelle Robinson. I use she and her pronouns. Native Calgarian is being recorded on the lands of the Nitsitapi, which is the Blackfoot Confederacy. The Blackfoot south of the imposed U.S.-Canadian border are the Blackfeet, and north of the border are the Siksika, Gunai, and Bogani of the Confederacy. These lands are Treaty 7 lands, signed September 22, 1877, with signatures that include the Blackfoot Confederacy, the Stony Nakoda, Wesley Chiniki Bearspaw Nations, and the Dene from the Sutina Nation. I acknowledge all First Nation, Métis, Inuit, status and non-status across Turtle Island as the keepers of these lands. All non-Indigenous are treaty partners with the government signing on your behalf. I honor the Blackfoot as the elders and members have been so kind to me on my Red Road journey. Elder Red Crane taught me how to pronounce my spirit name. I was born in Calgary or in Blackfoot, Mokinstis, as Michelle Elliott, an English name which has afforded me privilege in an English colonial world. My mother is Northern Slavey Dene or Satu Dene, but my Indian Act and Post status card by the Canadian government says Yellow Knives Dene. My father is so Canadian. I'm a daughter of the Mayflower, a daughter of the American Revolution, and having an Indian Act and Post status card. I acknowledge my Dene lineage, and I was born in Calgary, but my family is not part of the Treaty 7 signatories. My Dene lineage roots me in the land of the Hare people, also called the Great Bear Lake people in Treaty 11. I'm a native to Turtle Island, and my Dene Nation is a visitor to this area of Klincho Tine Indahe in Satu Dene, meaning Many Horse Town, named after the Calgary Stampede. Land acknowledgements are critical for creating a safer space for Indigenous, as well as honoring the host as a guest and acknowledging your role as a treaty partner. My humblest apologies to the Blackfoot elders and language keepers as I try to learn proper pronunciation. Any mistakes or misinterpretations will be on me. I encourage questions so that misunderstandings can be cleared up as soon as possible. I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous. I just share what I know as I walk down my red road. If you're experiencing emotional distress after anything we talked about today and want to talk, call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It's toll free, open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. All non-Indigenous, there are distress center lines in your area as well. My Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. I want to say thank you to the previous donors for showing your support to this show. If you value listening and can afford to give, thank you. To those that cannot afford to give but listen in, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com, where you can send in your questions or comments. I also have a YouTube channel, and I'd love to have you subscribe. You can go to Native Calgarian for the latest podcast, and if you go to social media, it's usually the pinned posts. Uh, and I'd love to give a shout out to my super loyal donors, Adam, Agent Indian, Alexandria, Beatrice, Ben, Beth, Brian, Kat, Celine, Christina, Crystal, Diana, Jacqueline, Jana, Jenny, Jessica, Jocelyn, Judy, Karen, Kathy, Kenna, Leah, Lisi, Marisa, Melissa, Morami, Natalie, Nathan, Rebecca, Rochelle, The Sprawl, Shara, Sharon, Tim, Tammy, Tiffany, uh, Thalia, Vanessa, and Veronica. So today I'm lucky to have a friend of mine on the show and love to introduce her. Deidre, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I'm Deidre Solange Lattiser. I am a Calgary-based Métis artist, 
focusing more in theater and live performance, but uh, less of that now that the pandem pandemic started. So uh, yeah, that's a harsh truth. Um, I'm happy to be here. I don't know if you can hear, but there's laundry going on in the background and you might hear a cat meowing at some point. We're just gonna leave the cat outside the door. <laughs> so you might hear that. I think she's wanting attention. Um, other than that, I, I normally go by deeds. Uh, yeah. Awesome. Well, I'm really glad. And just so you know, cats are welcome on the show. And I think the first and most important question will be, what's your kitty's name? <laughs> Not my kitty. It's actually my roommate's kitty. Uh, uh and and the name is actually Kitty. And so I can't allow Kitty any screen time until I get approval from Kitty's manager. <laughs> <laughs> Right on, that's awesome. So Deidre, we've got to know each other through Chaos and the Canada Learning Bond project that we're working on, uh, but I know that you've been working on an album and I really am excited to hear all about it because you and I haven't had a chance to really catch up and tell me what that experience was like. So would you mind talking about that? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. yeah, we haven't really done anything outside of work things. So also Canada Learning Bond, Hashtag free money for students. Look it up if you haven't already. It's good. <laughs> um, that's me doing my little face time <laughs> of that. Um, yeah, I've been working on an album titled Goats, the Presenter. And it's actually um, a partnership. Well, not the album. The album is a partnership to a uh, one-woman show I'm, I've written to. So they go hand in hand with each other essentially, but the album itself is focused more on the music and the spoken word pieces. Um, it's, I, I call it a mini album because it's no by no big feet 12 songs or anything. It's just five songs and a spoken word piece. Um, and the show itself is called Ghosts Return to Morning. So yeah, it's a, it's a interesting uh, show about um, death. So if you feel like crying, feel free to tune into it. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's super cool. So you were saying that it's a uh, spoken word. Yeah. Um, well, the show itself incorporates different aspects of telling a story. So since I consider myself a master of none in my show, there are definitely monologues, but there are spoken word pieces. There's music. It's very lyrical in the way it tells a story, but I use multiple mediums to get the point across. So essentially, um, I believe in like writing shows that have no spoilers. So there's no spoilers in this show just because it is what it is when you read the abouts on Facebook, Ghost Returns Morning. Uh, so essentially, it's, the, it's my own uh, journey back into my history. It's autobiographical and sentiment, but it uses three different characters or what I call my inner personas to tell a story from different perspectives. And the story is essentially my relationship to death ever since I was a young girl to where I'm at now. Because um, I unfortunately experienced my father passing away at a young age and then my mom most recently passed away in 2017. So in between that, there was just a plethora of loved ones who have passed away too. So while I was growing up, I became very accustomed to um, death, I guess you would say. And so I decided to write a show about it. And the three characters, the presenter, 
is this all enraging like ego it's very omnipotent character who just doesn't can i swear on the show or is that absolutely okay doesn't give any fuck about anything and just looks at an issue and just has all the confidence to call call things out um call themselves out so the presenter is actually the persona that actually performs most of the songs on the album so you're like Yes, and that's why the album is named after the presenter, because that's the first character you meet, and that's the introduction to this show. And then there's the young thing, and the young thing is um, essentially my persona, my inner child, being able to talk and talk through their own personal experiences with all the emotion and visceral reaction they have, and do that not so much full of shame. And then there's the new thing, and the new thing is this catalyst of the presenter and the young thing that happens at the end where they meld together and they essentially become this new thing which uh where I think I'm at in my own journey with death and grief and everything so yeah it's a it's a one woman show one hour long and it's actually going to be um released online there's I'm doing what I call um a fancy reading so there's a reading where you just read from the script and then there's the more fancier reading which is on its way to a full performance of the show but because the show has aspects where they uh where the characters talk to the audience and they interact with the audience since I don't have an audience I figured it wouldn't be best to film that kind of show so I decided to uh just have a more fancy partway reading between the official show and a uh, desk reading. Yeah, I don't, I don't know what, if I'm doing a good job at explaining it. I feel like I haven't really talked to anyone except people in my team about the show, so I get a little nervous and excited when I explain it, but yeah, it's just this awesome piece of theater that I'm presenting to the world for free. Um, anyone can come in watch it on the 14th and then the album will be released shortly after and i'll leave it up online for about a week and then take it back <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome no that's super cool i i would love to promote that in any way i can so know that i want to support that and i want to watch it i want to watch it and hear and hear what you have to say and i think it'll be really fun for everybody to you know see this because it's interesting you talk about death um you know, one of the people that I, uh, a colleague of mine, I, I don't even like to call her a colleague. I look up to her. Uh, a lot of people in the city know Sharon Stevens, and she has been so kind to me and brought me into a lot of different uh, worlds of hers. Anyway, uh, she did some incredible production at Union Cemetery, and uh, this was not last year, I think was one of the first years she couldn't do it for which, whichever particular reason, but you know, it really was allowing artists to talk about death and celebrate death. Um, the concept was to celebrate on the day of the dead, but because it's always so cold here, she did it, I think it was a month earlier on the, you know, full moon. And mm -hmm. uh, you know, I, I recently came across the idea of a death doula. And I was thinking that might be something I should look into because Unfortunately, um, a lot of the work that I do is is dealing with families who've lost a loved one, usually in a very unjust way. And um, as a result, like that creates another layer of trauma that everyone has to heal from. And Mending Broken Hearts is a really good program, but that bigger picture that it needs to evolve and include, um, you know, not just addressing 
360 scoop, um, inter, uh, Indian residential school, injustice, you know, that bigger picture of what it's like to constantly deal with death after death after death, cousin after cousin, auntie after auntie, uncle after uncle, and then having unsupported, um, you know, victim services unit, they really don't help Indigenous people. Um, a lot of the Calgary police and the RCMP actually aren't as kind to Indigenous people. I'm sure you're well aware of this. So, yeah. you know, it's that bigger picture of trying to support people through one of the most awful moments of their life again and again and again and again, because while Canada is in denial of the genocide, you and I live it. So, you know, that bigger picture of, you know, processing death on a regular basis is so healthy and strong to do. And I, I really applaud you for walking down this road. Well, the idea or I, I come from a bit of a, not a bit, I, I got a degree in performance and theater from the U of L. I keep undercutting my degree. It's just sitting there still in its envelope, never opened. I forget about it sometimes, but I got the debt for it. <laughs> I, uh, in the in my theater school one of the lessons i took from it was authenticity and the aspect of being authentic and what that means is they really wanted to focus on not teaching us how to always act in other people's stories or audition for other people yes that was a part of it and yes i do do the auditions and i do do the regular you know 10 to 5 of being an artist and my own like manager looking for the next job but they really focused on um, the ability of giving their students a way to create their own work. And like I said, one of the lessons with that was telling your own story and not forcing or faking a narrative that just isn't there. And for me, while I was in university, I never studied playwriting. I never studied what it is to create a show from scratch. I, I studied, um, I studied, what is it, what is it called? Oh my gosh, my mind, my professors, if they ever listen to this, they're gonna be so disappointed. <laughs> I, I studied creation theater where you uh, work alongside, it's a D word, it's somewhere there. It might come at me later in the show, I might come at me days later, but it's there. But I essentially only studied what it means to create a show, um, improv and scenes with other people, not really putting things down on words, not really studying the traditional Western European way of creating theater. So um, towards the end of my year, and this is just kind of like an origin on the show itself, towards the end of my year, when I was emerging, as we say, and that's when you go do a round of auditions in front of industry professionals, and they essentially judge you amongst your peers and be like, Eh, I don't know if you're the one, you're the one for me, or something like that. Um, I essentially was emerging, and with that, I felt this uh, heaviness, this, um, it was a long road to get to emerging. It took me five years to complete a four-year program, because you have to actually audition and compete within the program for roles, but also audition to get in one of the classes you need to graduate. And the first time I auditioned for that uh, in my fourth year, I failed the audition. And I wasn't allowed to have a second audition that summer. So here's the thing, that audition only happens once a year. Um, unless they invite you back to see you again. And when I talked to the panelists, they didn't want to see me again. And they actually questioned me and said, do you actually want to be in theater? Is this for you? Is this like, would you want to be? 
do you want to be an actor? Kind of like real hard hitting stuff after four years. And at that time, I was very depressed and I was in a negative space. So when you're in a negative space and your emotion shut off, it makes any character you try and act dull. <laughs> like it's not, you need emotion to actually tell a story. So I, I failed that audition and I told myself, well, I don't have the luxury of um, being able to try this again and again. So I'll give myself one more chance. If not, I'll switch my major from performance to something else. Luckily, I got the yes, and I, and I got the yes, and I got the show I needed to graduate. But because it took me five years to get to a point in that university where I was actually receiving yeses and roles, where I found who I was as an artist, I didn't get a lot of opportunities and experience. So when I was going out into the world, um, emerging, as I say, as I, say I, uh, I didn't expect much. I, I, I've been accustomed to no's and rejections. So I thought, what would be something that I could do to put my name out there and at least have someone take notice of me? And an alumni from my school was having an apartment show in Calgary. And it was this thing uh, that uh, Colin Dingwall puts up. Well, sorry, no, not Colin Dingwall. was Colin Dingwall. I think it's Colin Crow. Um, no, Colin Wolf. Oh my goodness. See, I'm so bad at names and places. Things change over the years. Um, but anyways, it was this apartment show where you essentially get a room and you just create a show within the room. So I chose the bathroom <laughs> and I didn't know what I was going to create. So I started writing what I thought was going to be a rap and it ended up being a 16 bar rap. Um, not even six. I, I don't even know if I'm using the terms right, but it was like 16 paragraphs long, this rap. And I knew it was going to be something about experiencing my father's death. And he passed away from cancer when I was 14. So it was just going to be something about that. And I knew that I had something to say. I didn't know what it was. I didn't consider myself a rapper, but I do love the form of telling that. Um, and I focused on that and then focused on reliving all the funerals of loved ones I went to after my dad passed away because he was essentially a catalyst. Um, and then every year I was going to countless funerals for people that I cared about. So I, in that, in that month of emerging, I was graduating, I was emerging and I was writing this spoken word piece. And then I come to find out, I got the news that my mom passed away from a heart attack that same month. So immediately I was waitressing doing my little, job I probably shouldn't have been doing this on the job but immediately when I found out my mom passed away the spoken word piece was just in my mind the rap I wanted to create and it, and it ended up becoming not just about my dad and the previous people but the journey of experiencing my dad's passing to my mom's passing and the frustration and I went to stay with family for a while for a week after uh, finding out what happened to my mom because luckily I was blessed with a third parent. So even though I lost my dad and my mom, my biological parents, I have my mom who was widowed by my dad to take me in. So she took me in and it was a hard time because I made the choice not to go to my biological mom's funeral. And that was the first funeral I chose not to go to because I really didn't want to, I realized I was faking and forcing for other people. I wasn't being authentic. I, I never truthfully said what I was feeling to all these people and they were putting their expectations on me and their grief on me 
And I didn't want to have to do that at my mom's funeral because my relationship with her wasn't a, a good one. It was, it was complex and she was troubled and it was slightly abusive. So I thought, I can't do it. I can't go there and have people be like, oh, you look like her. Oh, your mom must have done so much for you when in fact she's ignored me for the last three years. As I've told her, she can't be abusive towards me. And I made that boundary while I was in university because I was depressed. And you, you can't have an abuser in your life when you're already in a tough spot. So I didn't want to have to go to the funeral and deal with that. So instead I went and stayed with my family for a bit and allowed myself to be sad. But immediately after, I don't know what I was on. I decided to go and do this apartment show and it had dark humor in it and had the spoken word piece of ghost. That's actually in the album, the, the catalyst that started this whole uh, process. But for a year, I, I went to the emerging groups, but again, I wasn't in a good place. I didn't get a lot of opportunities. So for a year after graduating, I didn't go to my own graduation. I didn't celebrate it. Um, I was just wrecked. I was drinking a lot. I was doing a little bit too much weed and I was just waitressing and not having any opportunity and just spending most of my time in my apartment for a year. And after that year, when my lease was up, it took a friend saying, Hey, Remember when we talked about moving to Calgary? I'm like, yeah. And I'm still like depressed and like numb out of my mind. And I'm like, yeah, I remember. And he's like, you want to do it? And I'm like, don't really have a job there. I don't really know anyone there. Don't know if I'm good enough there because I haven't gotten any work in the arts. Sure, let's do it. And it was, again, my mom and my friend Marshall and my friend Elizabeth who they're my current roommates now, two years, we're going strong. Um, they're the ones who, whether or not they know it, my mom definitely knew it. They're the ones who took me out of my stagnant space and thrust me into this new thing where I actually had to get up and get moving and try and audition. So I came here. I know this is a long story, but it's getting, it's getting, it's getting somewhere. I, let me tell you. I came here. Um, again, I don't, rely on the fact that other people are going to give me work or see my work or anything just because I've I've gotten a lot of rejection right so when I came here I was auditioning for things and decided to be a waitress again and was looking forward to that but then I was thinking you know I was always thinking about this show and in the, the year that I was not doing anything I reached out to a friend Nicole and I asked if he could help me write a song about my dad well, I wrote it. I asked if he could help me produce it and like put music to it and the melodies in my head. And that's another component that's in this show. And so the year I wasn't doing anything, the only thing that like took me out of my space was when I went into the studio for the first time and, and scratched together this first ever track. And I've never considered myself a musician in any way or anything, but I just did something because that's what people were telling me. You should just do stuff that scare you. And I'm like, cool. I want to be scared. I want to feel human again. So let me do things that scare me. And then um, after a few months of being in Calgary, I got my first performance role. And I was like, okay, cool. Now I have to actually go to rehearsals and do stuff with that. Um, great. <laughs> I don't have a lot of experience. So I was just like trying to keep my ears open and really taking everything around me and figure out how to be a professional performer. And then after that, I was just again, auditioning for hundreds of things, getting a lot of rejection, but 
I've managed to get another performance job after. And I was able to quit my waitressing job and I haven't gone back to that. It's been nonstop jobs that have to do with performing. And then I realized I, I was just asking peers because I didn't really like using other people's names because I had some, I have some good friends who are making waves in this industry, but I don't, I don't like relying on their names to get, but I did ask them, what should I do? And they're like, you have to sign up for all the emails, the equity emails. You have to reach out. Hey, maybe like be an usher in a few theaters, like audition, audition. <laughs> See, it's in my mind. Apply for theater jobs and apply for the U of C and be a standardized patient. And I was thinking, okay, everything I, I do now has to at least whether it's not for money, if it's, if it's a performance job, really look at if it's for money, if it's the job or what we're trying to do with it and make your choices. Cause some jobs try and say, Oh, it's volunteer only. Right. And I'm like, if this either helps um, exercise any one of my skill traits or give me a new skill traits and it's within telling stories and the entertainment industry, do it. If it's uh, a way to make connections to people in the theater industry, so a lot of my side jobs switched from just like not being having anything to do with the industry. I had jobs with theaters as ushers and as a standardized patient for the U of C. And also I got in with a company that goes around teaching kids theater in school. And all these jobs essentially understood that my first love was telling stories and being an artist. So when I got the call of, you know, going away for the summer and touring all the fringe shows for this one company out of BC, they, they're like, yeah, cool. Tell us when you're back so we can give you some shifts. And I'm like, great, beautiful. Um, I'm doing things. And yeah, it was, it was really good. And there was, there was a moment where there was a moment where there was a show where I was recast where I did the opening of the show, but then I was recast when they were touring and they pulled my contract. And it was because of, unfortunately, we didn't get along in, I guess, the rehearsal space and I was not who they were looking for. I wasn't the kind of performer. And I really had to self-evaluate because I didn't have a lot of experience from university. I didn't get a lot of experience. So I was using previous shows to figure out how to work and be respectful in the rehearsal space and with my peers. But one show's space, how they like to do things, doesn't always correlate to how another show likes. And I learned that and I had to, and I was really depressed because I was on this, like what I call the track record of getting yeses and being able to expand and become a better performer, but then that no set me back. And again, it was my friend, Marshall Vial, people know about, and it was Marshall saying, hey, cool, you, that sucks. Um, maybe you gotta self-evaluate, look at how you can become a better person. Maybe it's not just you, maybe it's just not the right, and people were giving me advice saying, you know, sometimes, people just don't work well together and that's okay. And you really have to look at the kind of performer and person you want to be. So I was, I didn't know what to do because I had lost the work for that month that I was relying on. And then I saw this ad for Ignite Festival provocation series. And I was like, oh, cool. Uh, I have that spoken word piece and that one song. I'm a, should I sign up for a Marshall? And Marshall's like, yeah, just do it. I mean, you got nothing else going on. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm playing. He was really, he was really um, there for me. Um, but 
I went into this Ignite show with the spoken word piece and the one song, which both appear in the current one woman show. And they're like, great, you have a month to write a show and then you're going to perform it. And I'm like, <laughs> great, let me reach out to Nick Bull, who helped me with the first song. And I, I kind of was like, I think I want three other songs on the show and we have a month. Also, I don't have a lot of money to pay you. In fact, it's not a lot. Here's the money I have for you. It's literally you just volunteering your time and your experience for my passion. That's what I'm asking. Oh, by the way, I'm talking about both my parents dying, fun, exciting stuff. So you might have to deal with my, um, my grief a little bit. And he's like, yeah, okay. And I'm like, hey, Marshall, you told me to do the show. Do you want to direct the show? Do you also all these things? I can't pay you a lot for your time. We have a month. You're going to have about a week with me to choreograph because I have to write it first. Also, I'm dealing with grief while I'm doing I'm returning to morning. That's why I love the title return to morning. I as I was writing the show, I'm crying the whole time because I'm really reliving things. And I'm like, can you help me? And then I went to one person. I was like, do you want to be my stage manager? And they're like, I can't deal with grief. And I'm like, that's cool. That's a big ask. So I'm not, I'm not, you're right. And then I went to the wonderful K hall and I was like, Hey, <laughs> same thing. Also a previous person denied because they can't deal with the grief thing and all that and the hard content. Can you? <laughs> and they're like, yeah, okay, so I had my team, and within a month, <laughs> I wrote this show, and because I've never written a play before, I didn't know what I was doing, I was just staring and staring, and then I, one day, I took out my phone, and I'm like, I'm gonna write a letter to death and really complain a lot, cool, and so <laughs> I wrote this long, long letter um, to death, essentially, like, a lot of yous at, directed at death, and just um, crying the whole way through, and then I broke that letter apart in segments, um, I sent the spoken word piece to Nick, and I was like, hey, use these words, and also my sentiments, and what I'm telling you, I envision, can you give me three songs, and he did, and one of the songs he gave me the night before we were supposed to perform, I was supposed to perform, I don't know why I'm saying we, it's me deciding to write a one-hour show with five songs, or four songs one, that I don't even know yet performing myself on stage. And it's just like all these things came together. And then I performed that piece. <laughs> and then I, I, I went on tour on a French show. I left for a while. Mind you, it was, it was I'm going to say, like, I almost got like 100% audience uh, participation and my audience was full almost like 90% of the time for the show run and that's just because I chose to only put six chairs in the audience six to seven chairs so that at least if two people showed up it would look like a full house yeah it was just, <laughs> just so that at the end of the day I could go home and be like man we got 70% audience turnout <laughs> and Oh my gosh, when I tell you, like, no one came to this pretty much, but the few people who did come, they would always come up and talk to me after the show, because I did a sort of, like, talk back thing. I did this thing where I was like, 
now you have a chance to write your letter to death. And I handed out pieces of paper and I was like, if you want me to read it, let me know if you wanted to, if you're okay with um, it coming with me on any future renditions. I had big aspirations for the show. I didn't know where I was coming from. It was, it was, I was, I, it wasn't my best performance is what I'm going to say. Um, but I, um, uh, the, some people wrote me letters and this one person, a complete stranger. In some ways, I think it's, more amazing when friends and peers don't come to your work or shows because when it's a stranger coming and they don't know you or have any expectation and you do something for them and you also didn't coerce them into coming to your show that means the world because this one lady came up to me and told me the story of how her mom just got diagnosed with stage four cancer and she didn't know how to feel or deal with it and then she saw my show on the website and came and felt not alone. And I'm like, oh my goodness, I'm doing that thing where I'm like, my whole life, my whole career, in my um, little bio, you have to give a bio about and brag about yourself to every show you do. I am, um, rather than like brag on the shows I got, mostly because when I first started, like when I got my first show, I had no previous shows to brag on because I got so many rejections. So I was like, I'm going to talk about future aspirations. So in this bio, I think I put something where I like helping conduct other people's stories to the public eye and one day hope to do the same for myself. And like when this lady came and talked to me, I realized that this show has a place. It has a place where by example, if I lead by example and I bear my soul and I'm vulnerable and I talk about the ugliness of experiencing death or how Western society puts shame and hushes it up and doesn't really express it. And then how within my own family, it's always the conversation of this isn't the time or place for anything. If I like rip that open and put that on a platter and lead by example by actively participating and doing things with it, maybe it'll give people like that one lady the okay to go to a friend and say, hey, this is what I'm going through, or this is what I experienced, and it's not resolved, and I'm angry, and that's okay. Like, I, I really, it was like, ooh, hoo, hoo, education moment, lead by example, and then I won't have to feel guilty when I tell other people that their stories deserve to be heard, because I'm trying, <laughs> I'm trying to convince myself my story deserves to be heard, too. That was a long spiel. I love talking about myself. Can you tell? <laughs> no, but that's great. I mean, well, in, one, I didn't want to interject because I think once you're telling your story, like just yeah. telling your story, one, is healing. But two, you know, to try to promote what you're doing is really, really important. And for you to articulate it is is crish, uh, crucial, I think, in that bigger picture. Um, and I want people to come and see what the work that you're doing. Um, <laughs> And then I guess lastly, I'm a little selfishly, um, you can't really tell, but my face is so swollen from the dental work I've been getting done. I have this like huge hemoglobin. It hurts. It's so hard because I want to laugh and I want to smile and it hurts. And I, <laughs> I, um, oh, I thought you were going to go the other way where you're like, and that's actually why I brought you on the show. So you can talk for me because I know Deidre that your family used to call you Mighty Mouth when you were younger. And that was your family name. And I just knew that you would help take away any of the spotlight on me. So my swelling could go down. 
That's what I thought you were going to say. Yeah, no, I don't have that background. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, now you and your audience knows that that was my name, Mighty Mouth. And I thought for the longest time, because of just things, that they were actually calling me Mighty Mouse, and I didn't get it because I was always super tall. But then when I got older, they're like, no, it's been Mighty Mouth this whole time. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that tracks. That makes sense. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I, I like telling the journey and the story of where the show came from, but because you can see that it's really just something I did out of fear and um, not having professional training to, I guess, write a play the right way. So I just went off on my own and I was like, I'm going to write a letter and we're going to make it work. And then everyone's like, well, not everyone, my own inner demons are like, hey, um, you're kind of giving away the entire plot in your description of your show. And you, um, <laughs> this isn't actual theater because you're just talking a lot at the audience and you're not showing the story. And um, that's just, you know, that's not the way maybe, I think it's kind of like a boring show because you're just essentially telling the same story from three different perspectives. And I'm just like, yeah, yeah, that's all true. But also I don't care. Um, no, know. I think it's really, really critical. And uh, so I'm really like, I'm political and I know you don't really know me that well. And <laughs> except I, from chaos. <laughs> yeah. I, I heard a lot of things come from you that, um, you know, it kind of, went under my skin a bit and one of the things that bothered me was that you're talking about your trauma your grief and the educational facility that you're doing your post-secondary like just didn't seem to connect that with with your additions and such and that really well, bothered me what I what I got from it and here's the thing um not everything you learn is for you meaning not everything I learned is my path, do I, I, I don't have to take it with me. Um, I like to listen to professors and peers in the industry when I ask them for advice because no one in my family has ever been in this game before, no one's ever done this, so I really have no framework to go back on. And I'm from, um, we weren't exactly middle class, you know, with five kids and a parent with cancer and sick most of my life. We weren't well off, so I never got to take any really, um, fancy courses growing up with singing, acting, my hobbies, my things I like up until I went to university. So I, I went there from like a completely dry like point of view. And one of the things someone told me, and I and I take things to heart and I and I utilize these words and these teachings um, because I have nothing else to go off of. So I really like take them. And this one person told me that um, you have to learn the rules of the game to know I'm going to break those rules. They're not for me. So even though I didn't take any, like I said, uh, traditional training in the terms of playwriting and creation in that way, I was getting in other courses, getting the words and the knowledge that, oh, for so long, theater has been done this certain way. This is the way to do it. This is the way you, the show needs to be interesting. It needs to take people on highs and lows. It needs to have a journey, an arc, and all these things like in my brain. And I and I just fall back on that advice that I know all this to be true. I know there's one way to do theater, 
but I also believe there are more ways to do theater and live performance. And so that's not for me. So it's about like, as much as I didn't learn initially, I knew the ideas and the concepts and what sells in the world. And that's another thing when you um, go into grant writing, just slight advices from people. It's often, how can you make this sell? How can you make this project sell? And for me, it was my first time writing a grant and I got the grant, but I was lucky enough that this grant wasn't focused on how to sell it. It was more focused on indigenous creators making things within their own respective fields. Um, I'm trying to like get at where you, you were telling me how there was a discrepancy between us as artists, as people, if we're told to be authentic and be ourselves, it's also a conundrum when people say, how can we market off of your pain and your grief? And also internally, I'm thinking, am I being disrespectful by using the pain of my family and myself to tell a story and tell theater and, and get notoriety? Because regardless of what I say, my name is on the piece, I'm producing the piece, I'm here promoting the piece is that wrong? And initially I kind of go with blinders on and I say no, because the whole point of me being in this industry and me seeing the worth of everything in this industry from um, people who write stories to theater, to television, to the big screen, to video games, like everything within the entertainment industry and music to me has always been about sharing a story. And sharing a story is knowledge and communication and creating empathy. So when, when I, I'm faced with these real world questions and these ponderings on how to market the show, I, I, I look at it and I'm like, all I wanna do is tell this story. That's all I wanna do. Whether or not people like it or tune in or whatever, that's a non-issue because I've already accomplished what I wanted to do when I first went up at Ignite and that woman came up to me and told me her story and felt less alone. I've already accomplished everything I wanted for this show. So going forward, I don't know if this is making sense, but I'm realizing that I have the power to tell my story and make that my a part of my career as much as I have the power to help tell someone else's story. Um, and that's important, I think. And the one thing my education taught me is how to face rejection. <laughs> I, I know how to bounce back from that uncomfortable um, thing and how to find inner validation. And that's making the smaller goals. So yeah, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if you even asked a question. I'm just like talking. I love this conversation, but I truly believe that every experience has a purpose and teaches you something, whether or not it's me gleaming the information, being like, oh, that's how I want to be. Or if it's an experience that tells me that's not how I want to roll. That's not how I want to be. That's not what I agree with. I learned about it. Not for me in any way. So everything has that sort of experience. And also, um, one of the amazing quotes from the creator of Rocky Horror Show, I think he said, I wrote Rocky Horror Show to give me and my friends jobs. And I think one thing I really like about the second draft, this storytelling is with the grant money, 
even if it was only for a month or so, I was able to give my team who helped me previously work during this pandemic, paid work. Um, and, and that's a major thing that I'm happy to accomplish with my story. Um, yeah. Hmm. <laughs> I laugh because I'm uncomfortable with silence. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I guess, um, like, so first and foremost, everything you share is so um, incredible to hear. Um, we're hearing the story of what it's like to be a young Métis girl trying to figure out this whole industry. But from yeah, my I perspective... Have no, yeah, I have no prior experience in this industry. And even, like, as you said, being a young Métis girl, I think where, where I grew up and where I'm from, it was predominantly European-centric town and mindset. Uh, for the longest time growing up, I was the only Indigenous person in my grade, the only non-white person in my grade. And, well, no, that's a lie. There is one other person. He was, he was Asian. But um, there was just me. And so I never knew the disparity of not having others who know your life experience culturally. I never knew what that was like to have that around because I always thought the normal is everyone being white except me. Like one hundred percent, I'm half white, right? So I always thought that was the, yeah, I always thought that was the normal. And so when I went into university, U of U of L, you know, I love that they taught me what they taught me and everything, and I love the hard lessons I got there. But again, it was another place where the disparity was there. Where often in a studio or in a show there's not a lot of non-European people there, European Canadians. And that was just facts. And so I didn't even realize that, that I thought that was normal. I thought, again, being the only one with my life experience in the room was normal. So going out, it wasn't until like being active in the Calgary community and talking to other artists, both European and non-European and they're like speaking on like what you're speaking on the disparity and the greater difference I realized oh so when someone tells me you're amazing for the part you just don't look it you don't suit it that's really that language teetering back to oh you're a bit like ethnic looking or you're a bit because as much as I'm white passing to most white people I'm extremely ethnic. Um, even if I'm Métis and a child of colonization, quite frankly, they would look at me and guess me to be from Colombia or somewhere other than just other than Canada. My whole like career in life, and I'm teetering back to memories where I'm realizing, oh, okay, so I can be great and amazing, but I just don't look the part for this role, and so that means some of the roles. I'm going to get, I'm, some of the roles I'm not going to get strictly on appearance and less about merit and what I can bring to the role, which is interesting. And then it's just this whole thing where I've never been in this industry before. So currently to this day, I'm trying to navigate and each industry and see the kind of person I want to be, what I want to contribute. I actually only go out for roles that I'm passionate about, that I can perform in. And I'm being more retroactively um, uh, self-assessing when I want to go out for a role that's needs that's a Spanish person by trade or a Colombian or 
an Asian character, now I'm realizing, oh, maybe me as a person from a minority group within this industry can recognize I shouldn't go out for those roles. That should be for my Spanish sisters and brothers and my Asian sisters and brothers within this industry to portray those characters. They don't need me. If there is a Métis character, I'm gonna go out for that role. And I did that and I and I go out for roles that I know I can represent. But then for Making Treaty 7, they gave me my first two performance. They gave me my first two performance um, characters and one of the character was a Blackfoot woman. And so when they asked me to step in because their previous actor unfortunately had couldn't, couldn't make it for the role, I recognized, I came at it from, this is like really last minute. I'm, I'm excited for this role because this is someone valuing my indigeneity to be a person that could authentically play this woman who was experiencing trouble with alcoholism and, and you know, just all this um, generational trauma and violence. And I, while I'm not Blackfoot, I could recognize within myself and my own family and my relationship to my mom and just what I've been through, that hurt and pain. So I went for it. But even then, there was some conversations with close friends and confidants that they wished that a Blackfoot woman could portray that role. And I had to sit with myself because at first I was sad that no one was, it wasn't as like happy for me. But then I realized that's true. I can just try and help the story and move along, but I do have to self-assess and be aware where others are coming from when they want to see themselves represented on stage. Because I've never seen myself represented on stage until I think I saw Honor Beat, but even then that wasn't essentially like a Métis story, but I, I never saw myself represented in any character on stage, on film and everything. But I have sort of been that person for other people, audience members who would come up to me and say they've never seen their story told like that. So I'm realizing I'm just navigating the, this wild world. And one thing I recognize is a lot of the characters I go out for that are white, or they're characters where <laughs> you kind of know that they're intended to be white because their their um, culture or their history doesn't really affect their character story or arc or narrative. When it's uh, people of color and marginalized communities, often that on casting calls and everything it's explicitly said within their character statement for but for like blank characters European characters it's not saying oh this person needs to come from Ireland unless they do need to come from Ireland right so for characters like that and and uh fictional characters that again where the narrative and the story has nothing to do with um their culture and everything I go out for those characters mostly but it was something I didn't realize was wrong because it still wasn't taught at university because the point of view, the teachers, the professors, the fellow peers in the class weren't people of color. So the the, the story they were telling me was like, there's a non-issue in theater, but then coming to Calgary and, and seeing people and being ecstatic and I'm like, oh my goodness, there's like other stories here. And there's also POCs playing um, traditional characters in Shakespeare and everything because why the hell not? It's a fictional character, right? Um, all these things like excited me but immediately made me question my own brief past, like my one year of experience of performing professionally. And I realized that I don't know. I w I've been blessed because a lot of the characters, the stories I got to tell 
are indigenous stories. And then some of them aren't, they're fictional characters. And I got to experience both sides and it made me, it made me grateful. And I feel honored with every show I go, because most shows I go to, I'm told it's the first time this is being done this way, or it's, this is a first. And so while it's other people's first in the industry, for me, it's the bar that I expect others to react around me. But on the same time, as much as I'm getting these roles and I've been able before the pandemic to um, elevate my skills, I have people telling me that, oh, I'm super lucky to be Métis because it's so, like, being Indigenous is so in right now and you should take advantage of every opportunity. And I'm like, first of all, I'm a person that takes advantage of any and all opportunities, even if some people think I'm not deserving of them. So I'm like, ah, you don't have to tell me to take advantage. I am from a family that wasn't well off, okay? I am, I was bullied most of my life. Like, I want to take advantage of all the shit to get all the attention on me. I'm a middle child. <laughs> you don't have to tell me that. But then also, it made me, feel weird because it's like they're undercutting the work that everyone I've worked with and my peers who are also POCs that comment undercuts all the hard work and the years and years of bringing it to a point where their stories get to be heard where young kids get to see themselves represented on stage and I was so freaking baffled that they're like you get to take advantage of your culture and you're and I'm like yeah, welcome, microaggression. Yeah, sometimes some people, like, because I'm mixed and I'm ethnically ambiguous to some people, they'll, like, just straight out say these very um, ignorant comments without expecting any repercussion because they don't know I'm there and I'm not, like, from their perspective. I'm so not... I, 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 you're not going to believe the story, but I just had some security company come to my house and, you know, my house is decorated with Indigenous art, drums, I'm wearing earrings, and they're like, um, oh, so you must be Métis? And I said, no, I'm First Nation. And they said, oh, but you're so white. And he literally got in my face and was looking at my eyes. And I said, yeah, rape is a big part of Canada. So that, you know, I might not fit your stereotype. And he just was a dick. And thank thankfully, my husband eventually kicked him out. But, you know, it was that bigger picture that you know, people are constantly undermine who we are, think we aren't who we are, will never listen to us when we speak. And I couldn't believe how rude he was. Like it was, it was actually disgusting. And we actually tried calling the company he claimed to represent. And because they, you know, subcontract to a contract, to subcontracts to a contract, <laughs> it was like, so there's no accountability whatsoever to some jerk off coming into my home to try to sell me something while being racist. Um, saying really racist comments, not understanding. And then just, he actually started arguing with my husband and there was no accountability. Thank God there was no fist fights or something, but he finally left and, um, and it was awful. It was awful. And like for regular Canadians, they just think it's totally acceptable to question who you are, your identity, say ignorant comments, give microaggressions like that. Um, I don't know how many times people have said, oh, so you got a free university education. And I said, oh, you know, same. No, I'm in debt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know um, Indigenous people who don't have $30,000 worth of debt from going to school. Thank you very much. But I, I well, guess right yeah, back to what... What you were saying, though, about um, 
you know, like your education and there being so many European folks in charge of it and such like isn't that the craziest irony that people don't even understand and comprehend that you and I as you know half mixed indigenous people we have to still pay them $30,000 to give us an education that they should be giving to us under treaty but also we still have to learn their ways and they're still not willing to adapt to our ways. And the fact that you're experiencing racism within the theater companies as well, like it, it's just, it reaffirms well, it's what more I within ran. the community. I find that it's like, um, the, as you said, the term microaggressions, it happens with friends who say things in passing and don't maybe understand the, the weight or disrespect of those words. Cause when I think of that, yes, I think of, I'm starting to now think of um, advocating for myself and speaking up for myself. But really what I'm thinking about are all my peers who I see and I know their struggle in this industry and I know the amount of hard work and dedication they put. When I see that shit undercut, I'm furious because always, always for a lot of my peers, they question, am I just filling a quota or a box rather than being recognized for my skill and intent? And, and also a thing like on being mixed, some of these microaggressions often have come from my family growing up. Like these things I've experienced have come from family, close friends, before I even could contemplate that something was off with what they're saying. The reason why I'm like slouching my shoulders more or not really the reason why I don't like to celebrate my accomplishments and everything. Like I put on this facade that uh, I'm the bitch, like I'm the bitch that's doing shit and y'all need to get in line. Um, I put out that fake confidence a lot, but really I don't find myself expressly saying people that I'm doing good work because I, I don't, I, I, I get my shoulder, even to this day, there are moments in my day where my shoulder shrinks when someone says something and I'm not as okay with um, expressing the wrongness in that, or I don't know how to, I don't know how to put it in my mind and spew the words out that would make people understand that what they're saying is wrong because it's, it's all learned. Like, so when no one's teaching me this stuff, I have to learn, but if I don't know the right questions to ask, it takes a lot for me to realize the words and what I'm feeling and how to rectify it within myself. Because there are moments when I've said stuff that have been microaggressions to others. And also com com coming to terms with my own privilege within this industry. As much as I've been the victim of a lot of these things, I, I am far less the victim or the martyr of my people than people who are more visibly POC. And so a lot of that, it's very like interesting to me to divulge. And I do break it down to a lot of the times, like in the industry, people are asking questions like, well, if this is okay, if, is this okay? Is it okay if I do this? And I've realized that majority of the time, if you have to ask the question, it's not okay for you to be doing that. Um, <laughs> and even for myself, I'm like, if I have to ask if it's okay for me to play an LGBTQ plus character, I'm probably not the one. It's not, unless, unless it's from friends and peers who've invited me and want me to play this character and like gift me this character and this story to tell, I'm not the one if it's 
not my, if I'm not the best representation for that. And representation is as much, as much as representation is about the character and the screens and the stories being told, because there are a lot of indigenous narratives being told and things coming to light, as much as it's about that, it's also behind the scenes. Who's writing it? Who's producing it? Who's putting it out there? Who are they confiding in? Who are the, the makers of this story that are actually doing it in an authentic way that they could personally resonate with? Because a lot of the times the representation and the quotas to fill on stage and on screen and everything are happening, but behind the scenes, they're not actually bringing in those specific people to the conversation before it even gets to the point of production. So I found some of the shows I've been in where they're hiring me as the actor, I have to come in and be the speaker and the, like I said, the martyr of all my all indigenous people when there's over like 400 different tribes of all kinds of mixes and makes and everything and i'm not educated at all and everything all of them like i only know my own history but i have to come in and suddenly i'm the person that's saying like hey maybe if it's a story about a love between an immigrant and an indigenous person you don't have to put the word savage in there. Like maybe that will isolate and alienate and um, put your audience, if they're indigenous, in a wrong kind of way. And so I found like pre-contract pre now, I have to really be like, yo, if you're, if you're hiring me to be a cultural ambassador and someone speaking on all these issues and everything, rather than just the actor I initially thought, you need to either be paying me more for it or acknowledge, because I have, and Good I, for here's you. the thing, these Good. people are, these people that have hired me and given these jobs, I'm not speaking poorly about them, I'm just speaking on the ignorance of the system, yep. that when I come into a rehearsal space and you tell me when there's two characters that, and it's all um, European men, just sitting there, European Canadians, and I love using that term because if there's native Canadians, there's European Canadians. European Canadians sitting there in the room, um, all, 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 and they tell me, you're the first indigenous person and the first woman to be reading this script, where half the script is about an indigenous woman. And then I'm just like, Oh, I feel honored. No, no, I don't feel honored. I'm, I do the, I did the work and I made that show what I did and I was honest to them, but at every path, because I'm so new to the industry, I was shaking and scared internally. Yeah. That they call that imposter syndrome. Hey. Yeah. Because they do. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole terminology to it. So, um, imposter syndrome is that concept where you don't recognize it, but you are shouldering this bigger concept of having to, you know, do the cultural teaching for all First Nation, Métis, and Inuit, whatever you say is gold, but they don't ever want to compensate you for that education. And I guess what I was trying to get back to with all of this was because they are so ignorant at every single level from the education to the real world that today this is somehow placated on your shoulders and my so shoulders as well as everybody else's shoulders who are First Nation, Métis, and Inuit, when it's wrong. It's wrong for them. That is its own form of racism. And, um, you know, when I ran uh, municipally, that was when the Beaufort Towers um, display went up. And I tried to talk to Kate. I tried to talk to the city. I tried to talk to people about it in a good way. But 
the trolls that were all about defunding the arts took the narrative and the racist so-called progressives in the arts didn't want to hear what I had to say. So now we have an absolutely indigenous demeaning piece of art that is un completely unwelcoming to all indigenous on the west side of the town and the city does not want to have that conversation. Instead, they went out to their, you know, small bit of people that they talked to to get the check mark, to get the tokenized check mark, so that they could keep that offensive piece of art out there. And now, you know, here we have an Indian burial burial site as a so-called welcome to the city. And oh, it wait, just sorry, what was the art? I I I rarely leave my house. What are you? <laughs> yeah. What is it? So the city thought in all of their wisdom that it would be really great to pay um, an outsider from New York who's white a million dollars to put up um, the Beaufort Tower display that you see on the west side of the city. And I don't know if I've seen it. What does yeah, it look like? It's an Indian burial site. There's a, like a, like, it's not a mural or anything. It's like. No, it's a bunch of rocks. Yeah, on, on some. On, Isn't on it an metal. actual burial ground for Indigenous people, or is it just like a fake staged one? Well, it's an appropriated fake staged one by a white man because they didn't have Indigenous people really giving that a double check before they okayed it. Um. Yeah. So I talked about it during the election, but obviously, as you said, I don't fit the role despite being raised Canadian, so-called in a white society and, you know, having my education through the so-called white society, I wasn't native or I was too native to be heard and listened to. So that's where we're at as a society. And now anyone who's native who knows what those are, are not just offended. Like it's, it's gross. It's, it's, um, I'm just trying to like offensive. Flip, the, flip the script and put it in perspective where I'm thinking when at all that has ever made sense. So I've never seen a fake Holocaust site or a fake cemetery of a mass like genocide from any other culture put on display. Now in Germany, there are where actual victims died. There are monuments to the crimes and everything to make them less forget. And then if I'm thinking about Remembrance Day, they do put up those white crosses to signalize all the soldiers who passed away overseas, but none of that is done in this weird context of welcome to the city. It's in memoriam, it's paying respects. So if they were actually paying respects to lost, I'm assuming um, since this is, we're in Blackfoot territory, majority Blackfoot no, it's they, not. It's just it's just a stolen piece of idea. It's like making a shitty dream catcher. That's really what it is to this white man from New York, because he grew yeah, up. Yeah, I don't know how to make it make sense in my mind in any other yeah. way because I've never seen anything like that done. No. And you know what the irony? It's funny you should bring this up. The next book club I have next week is on volume four of the TRC, and it talks specifically about the missing. Uh, burial sites for Indian residential schools and we went out my family went out to the Dunbo um, industrial site but the farmer wouldn't let me on so like we literally have burial grounds for indigenous people that we aren't allowed access to that we don't properly memorialize anyway and that is totally acceptable in Canadian society as well as having this Beaufort Tower as a so-called welcoming art piece that comes into the city 
it's so blatantly racist within the arts community. I can't even like tell you how gross it is. Like I've had this book club for over four years. There is not one single grant that I qualify for. So here's a native woman in the city running a free book club and I cannot get a grant. It's just inherently racist, the entire system. Yeah, I, I honestly, when I, when I like to be honest, it's me saying I don't, when I say I don't have the words, it's meaning I don't have the training or the knowledge to, for a lot of these politics, I just rely on instinct and what is inherently morally wrong in my mind. And that's why I try and make things work to see if it's ever been done in my view of history and what I've seen. And it hasn't. So I just get this confused, like, the purpose is weird. That's wasted money on, it's like me, like when I was talking to these people and I'm like, if the story was about not seeing indigenous, this indigenous woman as a savage and seeing her for the human she is and everything, great, have the word in there, that makes sense. But if it's just a true story where the word savage is used when you hate indigenous people, but when you love them and you're getting with them, they're suddenly native and human and everything. Makes no sense. Like, I'm like, it's just dumb. It's just poor script writing. Like, I'm not trained in script writing. I can tell what a good theater piece is and when things make sense and there's intent. So when I think about greater life politics thing, I'm like, what's the intent versus the impact? Okay, we know the impact. What was the intent? Cool, the intent is not tracking. It's dumb. It's not making sense. And that's more what I go off of, because again, I'm not trained in politics and all these things. I'm trained on humans. I understand <laughs> humans and society. That's what I understand. And I'm like, yeah. if something, the intent is dumb and it doesn't like track and it's like going all over the board. This isn't like a thorough justifiable thing that's been done. I'm like, whoa, that makes no sense though. And <laughs> when, <laughs> when I think about Oh my gosh, I had something in my mind that I was questioning and wanting to think about. Okay, so uh, when we talk about, we were talking about how often it's put on the artist in the room to suddenly be the speaker and the teacher and everything. It brought me back to this one thing my friend told me where often, often they do not actively participate in helping certain people. Like when you see a homeless person on the street, indigenous or not, or whatever, or a person or organizations for addicts or everything that essentially you do that you're trained to do that you're knowledgeable on. It's like when I don't do that, it's not because I don't care. It's because one, I'm not trained on it. And two, I'm still healing from it. I'm in it, in my own family. Every day I'm in it and I'm in this conversation and I'm trying not to break and fall through the cracks. And so I can actively, I don't have, I don't have the good, I don't have the great, great life where nothing's wrong to be able to uh, devote my energy. And I don't have the education and knowledge to know how to do it like healthily where I'm not taken down or dragged down. And it, and it gave me a perspective because often imposter syndrome I'm thinking, I'm realizing now that I can be the person saying in the room that you need someone knowledgeable on this. You don't gotta be me. This is just my personal opinion. My personal opinion, I'm saying that all the time, it's always my personal opinion. Even now, this conversation, my personal opinion reflects no one else. Um, 
you can be the person to do that. But often when I first got into this industry, because people were putting these expectations on me, I thought I had to be the person. I wasn't trained in university to be this person. I didn't, I, I'm realizing now not every person goes into a role and suddenly has to explain why this racial slur is not good for the script and, and actually explain it rather than just say it's wrong and have it be redacted or not out. Like, again, if it makes sense for the script and we're tackling the term savage, make it make sense, right? So, but I didn't realize that not every person has the same experience as me where they're in a space and suddenly they, they're like, so, Native History Day, hmm? And I'm like, you all are Canadians too, right? You're all in this colonization thing together, right? Yeah, y'all have opinions, go off, <laughs> like, like on what's wrong or right, like, it's just, it's this interesting thing where, for the longest time, I didn't realize other people didn't go have the same experiences as me. Like I thought my experiences were normal where I'm seeing not everyone has to be more than an actor when they get chosen as an actor for a role. You know, Deidre, I, yeah. you're, here you are, I'm 43 and I'm, I'm just learning all of those things that I don't want ever imposed on my daughter. And, um, the irony was like she would be in, um, in in her own classroom having Indigenous studies and they would bring in non-Indigenous so-called teachers and she would say, oh, well, I understand it to be different and they would absolutely ignore her. And now that as an adult, you're expected to know and speak after going through a school system that teaches you, no, 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 Native, you don't get to talk about you. You don't get to talk about your experience and your knowledge. So there's so much irony. But anyway, I wanted to um, empower you with the concept of racial battle fatigue. And it's something that all of us Indigenous are have every single day, whether it's that, um, you know, the expectation for us to be a cultural advisor, a spiritual advisor, or, um, that bigger picture of like the microaggressions and crappy behavior that we get like th that is racial battle fatigue and i didn't re recognize that's what i was experiencing for the majority of my life but that's what we experience when we get those awful things said to us and and these expectations all of these things that's racial battle fatigue so it's not a fair burden <laughs> another um that's good to know. I like that term. I like, as I told you, I like learning things that put words in my mind that make sense. Um, another thing that I've learned in creating my own show and producing it and continuing the journey with it and hopefully another show in the future is the concept that all, everything I create is indigenous art it doesn't have mean that the narrative of the story always has to be about the indigenous perspective and struggle. So that's something I learned recently because this show, Ghost Returns Morning, is about my dad and my mom and countless friends and families in between. My dad and my mom are both Métis, indigenous people. The show doesn't say it. It doesn't say, hi, I'm a Métis person, this is my art and everything. It's not in the narrative because the show is about death, which is a universal, it's a universal understanding that we all experience cross-culturally. And when I, when I first did the show for, the, for Ignite, there was like a box where 
there is someone who came up to me and again, it's done with good intent. It's done. I, I, but I had to really look in myself and they're like, do you want to promote the show as an indigenous story? And I'm like, well, it is, but why do I have to say that this is an indigenous person experiencing cancer? How does that make it different from other people experiencing cancer? Sure. Certain class structures and being well off or not well off. Also my mom, an addict, it's her addictions that led to her early heart attack. Like I, these are, indigenous factors but the story is about death and about relationship so i never once mention a name it's about dad mom brother sister auntie uncle it's about relationships so that anyone can visualize themselves but my being indigenous does make an indigenous story it doesn't mean that non-indigenous people can't relate to the story and it's not what i'm about to present because the narrative of the story is not directly reflected to the fact that i'm an indigenous person child going through this or that my parents are indigenous people going through their lives too it's has nothing to do with my dad being indigenous has nothing to do with why he died so and with my mom, there are deeper implications, addictions and everything. But again, I want to look at the concept of addiction and the concept of healing or not being able to heal. I struggle with that too, because I was a politician that ran, but ultimately I got put into boxes like that too, where it's like, no, I'm a Calgarian first. Why can't you see me as a Calgarian before you see me as a First Nation woman? But why does it only have to be one or the other? Mm-hmm. Is and so for the show, I thought, I felt guilty. It's weird because I'm being vulnerable and this is real shit, real talk. And I felt guilty because I didn't make me being native the, the narrative of the story. And when they came and asked me if they could promote me it in, as a native plan, I'm like, well, it is, but that's not the point of the play. So why would I want you to focus on that and its promotion? Um, I know, and this and is then, that checkbox again, isn't it? You are the checkbox. You are the token when they do it that way. it's. It, I hate this feeling. I know what you're saying. It's a crazy line. An edge to walk is a lot of people in nonprofit to say. Because I've never, my peers who were in the series with me, I don't think I saw the conversation being had with them of like, can we let them know your Irish descent or your, and, and again, I speak these truths not to criticize, but more to let's unpack what happened there. I'm not full of anger at these things happening to me. I'm astounded and kind of confuzzled, but I want people to know that everything I make is an indigenous story. But, and like, this is indigenous music. I'm an indigenous person. I'm Métis. I'm also a French person. But like, this is the, this is what I give you. But this specific story, the purpose of talking about death like this and revealing to you all the dark shit I went through (laughs) and I'm going through, all this stuff had has no reason for me to have to let you know, by the way, I'm Métis. Me being Métis doesn't make it more important or less important. But I want people to know if Indigenous people do decide to see this show, know that your stories are being represented. 
but your stories are on the same level as anyone else in this country. But it's not you being Indigenous that makes your story and your personal experience with death important. It's, it's a part of you, but that's not the reason why I want you to hopefully tell your own story and feel inspired and okay with dealing with your grief in a very loud and proud way. Like, it's, when, whenever, when my dad died and when my mom died, my mind wasn't like, oh shit, uh, oh shit, they died, they're indigenous and they died. It was literally like, oh no, I lost two parents. And, and, and then what comes after is my dad lost his gorgeous long black hair and he was trying to grow it back, but the remission didn't work out. So he lost it again and then he passed away. But I'm going to cry because it's like real talk. Whenever I talk about this, whenever I talk about him or my mom and her addictions and what she went through and the abuse in her own life and how she perpetuated that forward onto her children, me being one of them and what that meant for the way her life ended. The first thing in my mind isn't, oh, this is only an indigenous story. Or that, I don't know if I'm making sense. No, you're 100% making sense. You are my My parents aren't less, aren't less important because they're indigenous. They're more powerful and gorgeous and beautiful in their own troubled ways with their indigeneity and with they, the values or the lessons I learned from their mistakes or their triumphs makes them important and for everyone in the world and I'm speaking predominantly from a Métis perspective like because I am Métis and that's the only life I've lived like death is so universal and so not discussed and if I'm thinking culturally definitely European it's definitely more hush-hush but when I'm thinking like of my my Sioux or Cree like ancestry, I don't even know how they celebrated or came to terms with death and passing because that's colonization and that's the loss of knowledge and that my family experienced. Uh, is this making sense? It's hundred percent. I think like I think of the when I was running for municipal I had lost a friend in Red Deer to overdose. And because they are non-Indigenous family, the whole time you're talking, I feel like they need to watch your show. But again, it comes back to that, well, but you're Native or you're Métis, so therefore this doesn't apply to me when it exactly does. I had to leave my friend's funeral early to go meet with Nenshi that day. Yeah. Because like, I feel like that's another thing that people non-indigenous people separate themselves from going to see an indigenous play an indigenous film and indigenous music it's rightfully okay that these are marketed as indigenous movies made by indigenous creators but it's fucking stupid that non-indigenous people for some reason divide themselves and say oh that's not my story it's like so you ain't ever lost someone you ain't ever experienced these things is it only us that are experiencing these real human phenomenons like love loss death addiction is it really only us like yes we have a different perspective in history because history is our history is very different from your history of how you came to be in this 
current country country society. But y'all y'all never experienced that shit. You don't you don't eat like I don't know if there's <laughs> eating. It's that's my thought and it's this thing where within my bio within bios in general, when I had to write my own bio, first of all, again, didn't know how to brag on things I don't, don't have like um, history with or experience with, didn't know how to do that. So I really like talk about my aspirations with theater and I've kept it, even though I've gotten shows and everything, my bio is still the same where I talk about everything I wanted to do with theater, right? Rather than what I've already done or whatever. Um, in the bio itself, I was confused because when I looked at samples of bios online, no one ever talked about their ethnicity or their culture, the fact that they're white or whatever. And I'm guessing most of these samples I saw were from white actors, like these sample bios that I like peened in. I'm like, how do I do this? Was from that because it was only ever indigenous people, indigenous actors and artists and POC people that in the first line talk about where they were born and their heritage and everything. And I'm realizing it's because for a moment you get to allow someone the knowledge that a minority like you has have made it in this industry. And I'm realizing that, but then I also realized how fucking like, because I didn't put it in, because I, I was like, okay, I guess, like, I don't, but I think now, I can't remember what my last bio is, but I think I do put that I'm a Calgary-based Métis artist, but before I didn't know, I, it was, like, this weird conundrum of the checking of the box or whatever, to be like, do I have to vocally say that I'm Métis to be accepted in these circles, or because to some people I'm white passing, to other people I'm ethnically ambiguous, uh, do I have to have a thorough line of verifying so they know if they can like me just based on my ethnicity or culture, like what they need something because it's so confusing and they don't know how to relate to me <laughs> if they don't know how I'm different from them kind yeah. of narrative. And even within that, even within that confusion within myself, I have both non and indigenous friends and people who question me and 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 they're like you you have a privilege that you get to discuss whether or that where I walk in the room and I'm visibly and I'm like and then I have some people in my family are like no you're the most like people don't understand you're so visibly like indigenous and it's like I think like Cree people and Métis people who have the same features as me can see it more than other tribes and everything but like it's just like this big game of confusion where I had to like really sit with myself and be like what do I want to say? No, I'm not for this show. It's about death. And I want to keep it focused on death because I don't put my name in it. I don't put my family's name in it. I say it's autobiographical and sentiment, but I don't like say like, I leave it open because I want everyone to see themselves. Mm -hmm. But in my bio, now I'm going to be putting Métis because I want my Métis brothers and sisters and indigenous and whoever can see that I'm doing, making waves in this industry can be like, oh, okay, cool, that person. But it's just like one word. It doesn't impact me. So it's like this weird thing where with each, and my one friend was like, I find it weird that sometimes in conversations you have to explicitly say you're Métis. Like, I find it weird that you're like, it's like you're trying to prove something. And I'm like, that is weird. That is true. I've done it. Like I've, I've been in scenarios or in a room 
where everyone's talking about these issues and I'm speaking up and it's probably my own perceptions that I'm feeling people perceiving me to not be allowed to be in this space or I shouldn't be here or I don't deserve to be here. And I'm like, yo, by the way, I'm AT, just letting you know that at least half of me understands <laughs> has been struggling, right? With the other half of me, like I, I, I get you. But then like also- You wanna know like, something funny though? Because I, I know Indigenous across the country, and the funny thing is, it's like Alberta is this like one place where the darker you are as a native, the more you're like, oh, well, you're obviously not native. But the irony is when I'm anywhere else in the country, they're all like, you are so native. Like they are like, re they, they know it. And I know you are not, uh, I, I know you're, you're native. I know that just by looking at you. But it's shocking to me like how you have to prove yourself, like because my daughter is blonde and blue eyed and people are gonna question her as, as being native enough, yet there's not a circle in Calgary that she's not welcomed and hugged at, you know? So it, it's so hard for me to wrap my brain around why it is we're so hard on each other sometimes. A lot of it is my own perceptions because for, first of all, when you're just bullied growing up, you have such low insecurity the minute someone gives you a look. And in this industry, <laughs> I've been probably, I, I, I recognize what my friend told me. They're like, I find it weird that you, that's your privilege. Like you get to go, he, he looked at it from his perspective where it's my privilege that I get to go into a room and either say I'm native or not and not have that be how they judge me. Like if I don't say I'm native, I can pass and everything. But if I say I'm native, then what? It's like I'm trying to use my nativeness to gain something, my indigeneity to gain something. And I'll be the first one to admit, like I said, any opportunity I can get to help me in this industry because I got no nepotism, like I got no one in this industry backing me up and I don't know what the heck I'm doing. Anything I could take advantage of, I will, to get that role, to humanize this person, to tell a story, but the... <laughs> It is so true because the thing is like I felt uncomfortable because I'm like oh that's true but also is that wrong <laughs> like <laughs> is, is it, it, it I'm asking the question it's probably wrong but I don't know how to live and be myself authentically because either way it's either I'm passing or it's uh, or I'm trying to take advantage of being indigenous in this current that's what it felt like feels yeah. like to me in conversations and even like being on this native Calgarian podcast, I always have the question of, do I belong here? Um, and also, am I, if people see me as just indigenous or French or colonizer or whatever they see me as, or Colombian, or I've gotten Japanese too. Like if people see me as all these things, what am I doing in my person in that moment to best represent the people they see me as? <laughs> it's kind of you know like what? where my mind's at. And that's why and, I'm so glad you're on the show. And I thank you so much for being on the show because one, not only do you belong here, but it, um, so here's the thing about being on the show. My light, my light went out. Oh, there you <laughs> go. A lot of non-natives have never heard two indigenous women speaking. They literally have zero concept of, you know, this imposter syndrome, racial fatigue, the microaggression, the regular racism, like they don't see it but you're like so well articulating it. So I just thank you so much for being on my show. But with that, I am going to wrap us up a bit because 
after that, I'm, I'm, I'm like, Michelle, I'm confused. Who am I in the public eye? And how should I behave? And you're like, so now we're going to wrap. Yeah. <laughs> but Honestly, the thing this is, this is like my inner conversation, my narrative. The only difference is I have a person who I'm actually saying it out loud to because in my mind, I'm like, who am I? Am I French? Am I Korean? Am I, am I a bad person? Like, I don't know. Well, and the I irony, really like talk to a Canadian, they don't really have their own identity and that there's so much irony. I wish we could talk about this all day, but I know we can't and I know I'll lose listeners at a certain point. So I got to wrap it up, but okay. you and I can have this conversation afterwards and you and I can call, keep talking after because. Uh, hey audience members, I think this show will be, this episode will be coming out after my show releases and my album releases, but I'm planning to keep it up for a week longer. So I know I just spewed a bunch of stuff and you're like, who is this person? She's so, she, she's so confused. No watch my show, watch yep. my show, and you might get to know me a little bit better. I think I work better with the script anyway. <laughs> Actually, uh, I, I think it's great to have you on because people get to see why, you know, we just love you at Chaos and why, you know, your your personality, how you come out and like, you're always prepared. So I, I just hope you know how much we love you. <laughs> yep, you are, but you're all of that, but it's all okay, so I'm happy. <laughs> cool, I'm gonna go eat food and try and be less confused. <laughs> <laughs> and if you need to call me tonight, you call me tonight, because that's, I'll that's call amazing. You and I'll, be, I'll be like, okay, what do I say to someone? Obviously, I don't go, hi, I'm <laughs> No, no, but you know what? I know, Like, we have to support each other, because... <laughs> Sometimes these conversations are triggering, but other times it's like, okay, now we know each other enough to be on the same wavelength to continue the combo. <laughs> well, if you want me back for whatever reason, I, I like I said, Mighty Mouth is here for you and your audience. <laughs> you know what? I want you back all the time, no matter what project you're working on, because I want to give you that platform and I want, I know people want to hear you. I know people want to hear us. And, and who, are, who are the people who want to hear me? Please let them, let me know. <laughs> Maybe we'll come see my show and donate something. I don't know. That would be amazing. That would be amazing. Uh, thanks again, Deidre, for coming on. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Right on. Indigenous have been talking about our issues, sharing our traumas in reports, commissions, and public hearings just so it can be regularly disregarded. No more. Honor our words. Honor the treaties. Listen to politicians and their policies and platforms. If they don't recognize the marginalized in their budget with gender equity plus, if they're cutting violence prevention programs and services, indigenous education, uterus health choices, gay and straight alliances, lack of human rights for migrants, human uh, immigrants, folks with disabilities, know that your vote to that party directly negatively impacts marginalized people. Demand that they implement the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's calls to action, the recommendations of the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, the multiple reports about child welfare reform, violence prevention, and now the 231 calls to justice from the National Inquiry on Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women, Girls, and Two-Spirit. Denying those reports is a form of abuse called gaslighting. Our, our people are experiencing extreme racism in the educational, health, justice institutions with multiple reports that say the same things. Demand change from election platforms and politicians. If they don't understand colonialism, racism, privilege, and sexism, they literally have zero business running. This should be understood by all parties. 
local politicians, community organizations, sports clubs, etc. A great or, uh, article I said out loud in episode 62 is Truth Before Truth, How Non-Indigenous Canadians Become Allies. I want to continue putting cultural safety into action by creating a safer space for Indigenous people of colour, those with disabilities, and LGBTQ2 plus to speak. Look at it as first aid only for marginalization. First you have to do something. Having good intentions is not enough. Take actions to make change. Speak out against racism. Ask questions of those with more understanding. Find allies to create a support system for yourself so that you can create for culturally safe approaches. Take responsibility for your own learning. Don't make Deidre do your work for you. Read, <laughs> reflect, ask questions. Don't expect <laughs> this learning to always come from us unpaid. Take time I fail tests, you don't want to rely on me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I want you to get paid for your information. That's what I want. <laughs> Thanks, me too, man. <laughs> <laughs> Take time for self-reflection. Be aware of your personal assumptions and biases against Indigenous people question everything you've learned about indigenous people and take steps to actively disrupt those stereotypes commit to lifelong learning be prepared to be uncomfortable understanding colonialism and the legacy of racism is an ongoing and difficult task and i want to say thank you to here to help.bc.ca for their piece that they have called indigenous cultural safety and why i should care about it Internalized racism or lateral violence is another form of violence Indigenous or marginalized people experience by the structure of racism imposed on these lands. So the Indian Act, Indian residential schools, land clearing policies help create this um, oppression. So learning about that and seeing why it is that we question each other's indig indigeneity. Because I think the other thing is too is that because we've lost our language and our culture, you know, we have to understand where people are on that spectrum. Uh, RacialEquityTools.org by Donna Bevins has a section on what is internalized racism. Uh, do's and don'ts for bystander intervention by American Friends and Family Service Committee. Um, if you experience or if you witness uh, racism, anti-Black, anti-Muslim, anti-trans, anti-Indigenous, or other forms of oppressive interpersonal violence and harassment, use these tips on how to intervene while considering everybody's safety involved. Make your presence known as a witness. If possible, make eye contact. Ask them if they want your support. Move closer to the person being harassed, if possible, and you feel safe to do so. Create that distance or barrier between the person being harassed and the attacker. If it's safe to do so and the person consent, film and record the incident. It's a lot easier to delete it later. Do take cues from the person being harassed. Is the person engaged with the harasser or not? You can make suggestions like, would you like me to walk over here, move to another train car? Uh, would you like for him to leave you alone and follow their lead? Notice if the person being harassed is resisting in their own way and honor that, especially white people. Don't tone police the person being harassed. Follow up with the individual being harassed after the incident is over and see if they need anything else. I strongly recommend people give other people their card because that is uh, validating that the experience happened and at the time it's really embarrassing nobody wants to you know say oh no no everything's fine and just want to get out of it and uh, relax a little don't call the police for many people experiencing harassment right now whether you're Arab Muslim black queer trans or migrant the police can actually cause a greater danger for the person being harassed don't escalate the situation 
the goal is to get the person being harassed to safety, not incite further violence from the attacker. <clears throat> Don't do nothing. Silence is dangerous. It can provides approval and leaves the victim high and dry. If you find yourself too nervous or afraid to speak out, move closer to the person being harassed to communicate your support and God give them your contact information. Then teach your kids about accountability in a positive way because these kids are learning it from somewhere. And I'm, I'm just going to bring up what happened in Cardston. Um, they did an orange shirt day exercise and this young uh, child thought it was perfectly acceptable to say I'm tired of listening about indigenous issues and y'all need to shut it up. They didn't say it like that. I'm paraphrasing, but it's the point that your kids are learning from you when you say, why are they always talking about indigenous issues? We're always talking about it because you're a settler and you're welcome on our land for now, but you're really, really trying your welcome here. So if you could start being a, a treaty partner and if you could start understanding what reconciliation is and then teach your kids about that, that would be really great than the racist um, you know, rhetoric you're already spewing in front of them because they are learning that. If you are witnessing or if you're experiencing emotional distress and want to talk, call the First Nation and Inuit Hope for Wellness Helpline at 1-855-242-3310. It's toll-free, open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And if you're younger, know that you can actually text with them if you go to helpforwellness.ca. And for non-Indigenous, of course, you can. every distress center will absolutely help you in the best way they can because you all speak the same language. Violence is just my everyday reality. Every Indigenous generation has faced it. That's why I started this podcast, to speak freely without interruption, without police toning, without uh, leadership shaming, without gaslighting questions, as many people don't want to hear about Indigenous opinion. Sure, want to tell us their shitty opinion, usually by people who know nothing about Indigenous, know nothing about colonialism, know nothing about what their role is as a settler. They know nothing about the constant surveillance of Indigenous people, our protests, our vigils, and our rights. Typical microaggressions, people dealing with internalized racism, people who are gatekeepers that survive off the status quo, or people who are so in their trauma they stop people from doing the work and deplete personal resources. Internal and external racism is an everyday reality for Indigenous people. And we talked a bit today about uh, imposter syndrome. It is sad I needed a podcast as a boundary to be heard, but here we are in 2020 in Canada. That's what it's like. So I want to say thank you to my ancestors, my granny, my mama, what strength looks like through your example. I want to say thank you to my dad for teaching me to be strong and blunt. My stepmom showing me what a proud culture is through her Austrian family and roots and stepping up and teaching me to be a proud Calgarian. It is through her I am a second generation proud Calgarian. Thank you to my husband for producing and editing this show. On top of being my husband, my childhood friend, the father of our child and support down my journey of the Red Road. He has witnessed decades of racism and sexism. And to our child, who we are blessed to learn from daily, I'm honored you chose us. You give me daily accountability to be a better and stronger person. And I hope my daughter and my family will be proud in the future of us trying to discuss these present day issues in a way that they can understand down the Red Road. Again, my Patreon account is Native Calgarian, where you can pledge and support. Thank you, Adam, Agent Indian, Alexandria, Beatrice, Ben, Beth, Brian, Kat, Celine, Christina, Crystal, Diana, Jacqueline, Jana, Jenny, Jessica, Jocelyn, Judy, Karen, Kathy, Kenna, Leah, Lisi, Marisa, Melissa, Morami, Natalie, Nathan, Rebecca, Rochelle, 
The Sprawl, Shara, Sharon, Tammy, Tiffany, Thela. I want, maybe it's Tala. I'm sorry. Vanessa and Veronica, thank you for signing up. If you did one donation or had uh, did many and had to quit for financial reasons, please know I um, appreciate your support. If you value listening, can afford to give, thank you. For those that cannot afford to give but listen in, I'd love to hear from you at nativeyyc at gmail.com where you can send in your comments or questions. And you can go to Native Calgarian for the latest podcast. And if you are on social media, the pin posts. And I want to end with a side eye to those Calgary rabbits. You're lucky I'm not tradish. My beautiful cousin would respond, or you'd be in my dish. <laughs> Thank you for listening.